Welcome to the International Conference of Secular AA 2020, December 5th, our first virtual conference on Zoom ever. This is the one o'clock Saturday panel. It came from the kitchen, not an outside issue, our sexism and gender bias keeping AA stuck. It features Maria Hornbacker, author of Waiting, A Nonbeliever's Higher Power, Beth H. from Phoenix, Arizona, and Heather C. from Los Angeles as well. Enjoy. Hi, all. I'm Maria Hornbacher. Where are we at this point? We've been, you know, trying to find a way into the room. I am about to make you a co-host, and I'm looking for uh, Heather and Beth as well. I think they're in the room. I'm here. Uh, okay. Hello, Beth. I'm Hello. you a co-host as well. And Heather is in too. Okay. Heather, where are you? Here. Maybe this will move me up to the front. Hi, Joe. There you go. Okay. Uh, co-host. Hey, Joe. Hey, Kenji. Isn't it? <laughs> hey, Matt. Uh, okay, I'm going to mute everybody now. We are at the top of the hour, and I will uh, leave this uh, capable panel to take it from there. Uh, thank you for your patience, everybody. We're trying to solve some of these technical problems as we go. So I'm about to mute everybody, and if Beth, Heather, and uh, Maria would unmute yourselves, three, two, one, go. Super. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Joe. For Am I unmuted? Am I audible? Yes, no? We're awesome. Good. Thank you. All right, folks. Thanks so much for joining us here uh, today. I am I am descrambling and I will descramble as quickly as possible. We're what we want to talk about today, Beth and uh, and Heather and I want to talk about issues surrounding sexism and gender bias in the rooms and out of the rooms within the program, embedded in the steps, etc. Um, we do not have a definitive answer. We are not here to make uh, an argument or a case. Uh, we have very different vantage points on this. We don't even necessarily agree with each other, which is all to the good. Um, what I want to start us out uh, with is just introduce you guys a little bit to my my esteemed colleagues here. I'm gonna I'm gonna chat for a minute. I'm a I'm a person in recovery, long term recovery. I'm also an author, journalist, and professor. So that's my day job. Uh, but really, um, I want to introduce you to Beth H. Uh, I don't know how it's just, it's so weird not to be able to like have people stand up. There's Beth in the corner of the screen. Beth H is from Arizona. She is a person in long-term recovery and author of the soon to be released book, which I'm very excited about. We're not all egomaniacs adapting the 12 steps for alcoholics with low self-esteem. Beth was a panelist at the previous two conferences in Austin and Toronto. Uh, she will speak second, uh, and wrapping us up today will be Heather Collette Vendera, MA. She is a PhD candidate at UCLA, specializing in cultural studies, gender studies, and affect theory. She's currently working on a book addressing the role of intersectionality in treating alcohol use disorder and addiction. She's interested in developing new models of recovery that diverge from the pathologization models that dominate the 12-step programs. Um, so I'm super excited to hear them speak uh, after, after me. This all started, this sort of, this, this topic has been on my mind for the many years that I've been in the program. I came into the program courtesy of uh, Hennepin County, which was the county in which I was a 15-year-old driving a stolen car. So I came into the programs, I'd say, through the side door at best. I did not come striding in, excited to get sober. I did come in courtesy of the courts, and the courts told me, um, you need to clean it up, and the only way to do that is AA. So you need to go to these meetings. And I was like, all right, I can do that when you're 15, you kind of, you know. Do what you're told, or I occasionally. Um, the first thing I realized when I got to AA was that 15-year-old girls are very popular. Uh, no matter where you go, that's a fact, and that's uh, that's the reality of it. I stayed out of AA for that very reason for about 10 more, 11 more years, not because 15-year-old uh, girls are popular, but because I, as a girl at 15, did not have any way of navigating the gender dynamics at work within the rooms and in the world. wasn't just AA. What I want to talk about today is how do we bring our cultural defects of character with us into the rooms? And that's what I mean by not an outside issue. Many times in the rooms, I have said to people, I feel like, you know, the gender dynamics here are getting a little funky. We need to talk about that. And people go, that's an outside issue. I'm like, that's intriguing uh, to me. 
Human issues are issues that we all deal with in our day-to-day -day lives, in our lives in sobriety, in our lives in recovery. Um, the culture in which we live is not something that stays outside those rooms. We drag all that baggage in with us, just the same we drag, same way we drag our personal issues as addicts in with us. Um, recently, very recently, I was at a meeting and I was talking about something that is pretty near and dear to my heart, which is the feeling that many women and female identified people in the rooms feel shut out, not just by the language of the book, which of course is archaic, uh, but also by the language within the meetings, within the within conversations, the within the fellowship. Mm. Um, I wanted to mm. say in this, in this, this was in the context of a meeting. I said, uh, I, I'm, I'm somewhat distressed by the fact that women, when they, when they come into the program, feel like they have to go off to the side and whisper to each other, I feel really uncomfortable here. I don't think that's a, a side issue. That to me is central. It is central to me that many of the people who come into our rooms do not feel safe, do not feel comfortable. It isn't, you know, I'm not about creating safe spaces. That's not my issue. My issue is that when I walk into those rooms, I walk in as myself with all my baggage. Part of my job within those rooms is to keep the door open for whoever needs to be there, whoever wants to walk in that door. Um, somebody came up to me after that meeting and said, look, lady, basically, he said, look, lady, I was told that there is no gender, there is no race, there is no age in these meetings. And I said, it is intriguing to me that a middle-aged white man is explaining to me that my experience in the meetings is not what it actually is. So this is all to say, we bring with us our garbage, we bring with us our baggage. It is our job, I think, as a community, whatever that community is, to continue to grow, to continue to learn. Um, so there are a couple of things that I want to break down to talk about a little bit uh, regarding the ways in which sexism and gender bias manifest in the rooms. And then I'm going to ask Beth and Heather to elaborate on their own aspects, their own angles on this. A couple of places I see this happening is the fact that I'm often the only woman in the room. Uh, that is, by definition, that sets me apart. Uh, it troubles me that women, in fact, many women, uh, really feel uncomfortable in the room simply because they feel set apart. They feel kept out simply by virtue of who they are. People of color express this. Non-heterosexual people express this same singling out by fact to, by the simple fact of the demographics of AA. Um, the problem there is not the room. The problem there is the people within the room. Um, it is us too. So that's the second thing I want to talk about. A, the demographics of AA are still very, 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 very heavily dominated by, by male, male populace, let's call them. Secondarily, when women and women identified people come into the rooms, we start bringing in our own female garbage with us. I see a lot of competitiveness. I see a lot of cattiness. I see a lot of judgment and I see a lot of gossip. I wasn't raised to, um, you may have noticed this already, I wasn't raised to keep my mouth shut. Uh, in, in a room where I am told to keep my mouth shut, uh, I, I become pretty quickly ready to leave the room. That is not unusual. You know, um, gender has changed since AA came into being and it needs to have changed. It has not changed very fast. And that's what I mean by when I say, um, is gender, gender bias and sexism, are they keeping us stuck? I think they are. Um, I feel that uh, it is it is an awkward position for me to constantly feel like the local woman. All the new people get sent to me with, well, Maria's a girl. She'll talk to you about being a girl in AA. I'm like, why is that a special topic? I, I feel like it's a little odd that like we have to have a special room for the girls. Um, it's sort of like the kids table. And so that's kind of what I want to get to finally is the idea that AA is universal, that the messages within our literature, that the messages at our tables, that the, the, the reigning stories we tell ourselves, that those are universal, that is false. False. That is a myth. Um, universal in that sense refers to a dominant perception, a dominant experience. It does not refer to a universal experience. And so what I want to get us talking about, we don't have, you know, we don't have tons of time today, but how, how can we, as a community moving forward, how can we look at a way to keep the door open for people? Um, when I feel like I have to beat on the door after 20 years in the program, and I'm still beating on the door simply by virtue of the fact that I'm a woman, 
That seems awkward to me. It seems awkward to me that I have to go to bat for women at every meeting. So that's the very broad uh, overarching thing. I want to turn to Beth now to um, take a look at some very specific uh, questions that she's tackled in her new book and in her own work. So Beth, would you mind, um, I can't actually see you. Um, would you mind uh, piping up, let me know where you are and I will mute um, myself. I'm here, I'm, I'm unmuted. Awesome. Can we put the spotlight, the spotlight on Beth? Yeah. <laughs> Let's put the spotlight on Beth. Remove spotlight. There we go. And my take on this may be somewhat different from the others. I think we all recognize that the book is basically white male, hetero, Christian, privileged uh, language and, and people. Um, and I'm going to talk about the alcoholic personality type that's described in the book and how the 12 steps were designed to correct those personality flaws or so-called defects of character. I am making some generalizations based on gender, but it's mainly based on the way that little boys and little girls are socialized in this culture, um, the type of expectations put on them, um, and why we need more models of recovery than the one that's based on the white male alcoholic personality type. Now, I know that there's um, men that are going to relate to the things I say, and there's women that are not going to relate to the things I say. So just I, that's, I'm only offering an example of another model that's not white male based. And if it fits you or, or doesn't fit you, that's fine. There could be as many models as, you know, as there are groups of people that fit one or another. Um, I'm going to start with reading a little from the book, AA Comes of Age. This is Dr. Tybout's appendix, the article called The Therapeutic Mechanism of, of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and this is where he describes the, al it, it, the alcoholic personality type. And it, it, besides the Oxford group, it's the other way that God works itself into the AA program. Characteristic of the so-called typical alcoholic is a narcissistic, egocentric core dominated by feelings of omnipotence, intent on maintaining at all costs its inner integrity. The best terms for the group of qualities would be defiant individuality and grandiosity. Um, inwardly, the alcoholic brooks no control from men or God. He, the alcoholic, is and must be the master of his destiny. He will fight to the end to preserve that position. Religion, by its demand that the individual acknowledge the presence of God, challenges the very nature of the alcoholic. Because if he can truly accept the presence of a power greater than himself, that modifies his deepest inner structure and opens him up to the possibility of recovery. Um, in other words, in light of Mr. X's, which is Bill W's religious or spiritual awakening is the act of giving up reliance on one's omnipotence. And then there's this, he describes a person who has had this change and in retrospect, it is apparent that the patient became aware of his basic egocentricity. For the first time, he was able to penetrate behind the facade of his rationalizations and defense reactions, and to see that always hitherto he had put himself first. He was literally unaware that other souls existed in, except insofar as they affected him, that they might too have separate existences, similar yet different from his own, had just never had taken on the aspect of reality. Now he no longer felt himself the omnipotent being who viewed the world only in relation to himself. Instead, he could see himself in relation to the world and could realize that he was but a small fraction of a universe peopled by many other individuals. So the first thing to take from this is that if you don't identify with that personality type, then the whole higher power thing is just a complete red herring and throw it out. <laughs> uh, but you know i have a hypothesis that most of the early aa -ers were this personality type and that's why they hit such low bottoms because they could not admit defeat they could not accept help um 
but they did publish their stories. And in reading their stories, a lot of us could see that our drinking was on the same trajectory as theirs. Um, we could see where we were headed, um, but we didn't have the same problem seeking help or the same problem admitting defeat. So we were able to have much lower bottoms. Um, and come in with a different personality types that AA doesn't address because when the book was first written, they were not aware that alcoholics could could be like that. So I don't really fault them, but just ne never changing after that when AA when the people coming into AA has changed so much, I I fault it for that. Um, it, my biggest obstacle to seeking help wasn't that I know everything and I don't need help. It was that I don't want to bother anyone. Right. <laughs> or um, my barrier to it, admitting that I'm powerless over alcohol isn't that I have trouble that I'm admitting defeat. It's just that once I say that, I know I can never drink again. I'm not quite sure I'm ready to go there. You know, so there's a surface similarity where we talk about don't want to admit powerlessness or we don't want to get or we're, we're reluctant to seek help on the surface. We may look the same, but if you look a little deeper, it's what's going on is actually quite different. So in my experience, and this is not going to apply to everyone, but most women do not grow up feeling omnipotent or that they are the center of the universe or that their own needs matter more than others. We are socialized to put others' needs before our own, to take care of others. Many of us have very low self-esteem, at least the ones that come into AA, and we feel that we're not enough rather than omnipotent. Many of us have been through traumas, whether big ones like physical and sexual abuse or the buildup of everyday slights and insults, emotional abuse and neglect. We tend to be hypervigilant, always worried about what someone else might say or do that could hurt us because we know from our past experience that those things happen to us. We are not crazy for being that way. Um, there. Are, I mean, if you want to talk about childhood trauma, there are various responses to it. Um, one person describes like four, they're basically like the four responses to threat. One is fight, and that's Bill. He just vowed to dominate in everything he ever did. He took, um, another one is flight. Another one is freeze. And the fourth one, I don't like the word they use for it. They call it fawn just because it starts with an fourth F, but it's basically the codependent response of kind of placating and appeasing and, and just, you know, not making waves, not rocking the boat. So Bill's fighting was his survival tool for the childhood trauma that he experienced. And it's pretty culturally acceptable for males unless taken to the extreme that he took it to. Placating and appeasing or freezing, like don't make waves or don't rock the boat, even when you don't disagree, just don't speak up. <laughs> um, that is what a lot of women do because that's very culturally acceptable for women. <laughs> the problem is it's unsustainable because it causes so much damage to our inner beings and we drink to relieve that. Um, so, we don't come into AA needing to have our egos crushed from the outside. Been there, done that. We need to strengthen our egos from the inside. Um, so when we come into AA, there's further abuse put on us by AA. They tell us our problem is that we're selfish and self-centered. That is about the worst thing, the worst insult that you can hurl at a woman who's been putting others' needs ahead of her own for most of her life. And it reaffirms our feeling of not being enough. No matter how hard I try to put other needs before my own, I guess I'm still selfish. Uh, well, that is not what's wrong with us. What's wrong with us is the belief that our own needs don't matter and that we're supposed to only be paying attention to others. Um, or, or else that we learn manipulative ways to get our needs, needs met because it's not okay to ask directly for what, what we're not supposed to acknowledge we even have. Uh, there's a, there is a big exception, and that's that when we're in our active alcoholism or addiction, you know, we do behave in ways that are selfish and self-centered as that's the nature of addiction. And But I think for most of us, our remorse is, is tremendous because we know that that's not being 
that that's not how we're supposed to behave. You know, like, I mean, a drunk, a drunk man is just, or an alcoholic man, whether he's a father or a husband or anything, is it's just a drunk man. But if it's a woman, it's like, oh my God, he has a drunk wife. She's a drunk mother. She's a, you know, it's like, they all, we're always seen in relation to somebody else. And it's horrible to be alcoholic in relation, in relation with somebody else. But for a man, that's an individual. That's just a man that's a drunk. Um, and another thing we are told is that our hypervigilance, which is our concern for our own emotional or even physical safety, is the same thing as Bill self-centeredness, which is being a bull in a china shop, full speed ahead with my own agenda, regardless of who gets hurt in the process. We are not like that. We are, in fact, very aware of other people's feelings and needs and just, you know, we are hypervigilant about them in order to protect ourselves. So being told that, you know, we're um, self-will run riot when we're just trying to be safe is counterproductive. <laughs> um, sometimes we feel down on ourselves or we suffer from depression. And, and then we're told that, well, that's pride in reverse. You just you just think you're the worst instead of the best. It's the exact exact same thing. That is abusive. That is so abusive. Um, and we're told that we get a morbid pleasure out of it. You know, you, I was nearly suicidal, but I was gaslighted by my mother all the time. She was always telling me what I actually thought compared to what I think I thought, or how I actually felt compared to how I thought I felt. And so this was telling me I'm suicidally depressed. I must be getting, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm getting a morbid pleasure out of this and don't really see it because I need somebody else to, you know, to tell me who I am. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was just plain abusive. Also, you know, there is such a thing as feeling pain. It's an, it's an emotion. We're allowed to have it. It's not the same thing as self-pity we're allowed to have pain and process it. To feel self-pity sort of requires a sense that I'm entitled to something better than this. Why me, you know? This shouldn't be happening to me. But I have never experienced that. I have always, I've never had that sense of entitlement that I should have something better. I've just been accepting that, you know, this is this is how it is for women, you know, we, um, we just kind of take it. And, to break out of that, we need to allow ourselves to experience the pain of living in it. And instead of being told that now we're feeling self-pity and we need to snap out of it. So, you know, this is something we need to recover from this, just accepting our role as women and, <laughs> you know, and, and to, to become who, you know, to become all we can be and to, to not be allowed to feel the pain except for to be told now that's self-pity you can't do that okay then we are also told that we're like the actor scenario who's trying to arrange everything to suit us to fill our prescriptions to meet our needs um but the fact is we have been more likely rearranging ourselves to suit others we um that's why we don't know who we are because we're always trying to, well, you want me to be like that? I'll be like that. Or, um, I mean, I could almost have an identity crisis if I'm at, when I was brand new, like if I'm at the grocery store and I meet someone that I know because we're soccer moms together and someone else I know because they work with my husband and I'm like, who am I now? It, and it's not because I'm like outwardly lying to these people about who I am. It's just that I have a certain sense of who I am when I'm with the soccer moms and a different sense of who I am when I'm with, you know, say my husband's co-workers, but, and, and that's all from the malleable, the malleable sense of self that adapts to, to fit in. Um, so there's an exercise that sponsors around here are doing lately, which just appalls me. And it's that they have people put the actor scenario in the big book in the first person. And, um, call 10 people and read it out loud to them. 
when they're doing their step three, I like to manage, I like to arrange the lights. I like to arrange the people. Everything would be good if every if everyone only did what, you know, I mean, if, if that fits for you, maybe that's a good exer- exercise, but if it doesn't fit for you, then that's tremendously abusive, tremendously abusive to make you say to other people something that you're not. Here's a good one. You ourself will run riot. Okay, I, um, I'm an attorney and I have a master's degree in anthropology. That's my academic background. Um, but I was talking to a client one time who was an Iraqi vet and he had PTSD. And he said to me, you know, when I walk down the street, it's not the same as when you walk down the street. He said, you're going, there's a tree, there's a bird. Uh, I'm going, what's behind that tree? What's under that bush? Is that bird carrying anything? Okay, when he's in Iraq, those, that is adaptive behavior. It is right on. It is exactly how you should behave. When you're in a traumatic childhood or dysfunctional family, that kind of behavior is also right on and how you need to behave. So, and when you come out of, so when we come out of that and are still hypervigilant, but the rest of the world isn't treating us like that, that's when it becomes sort of maladaptive in that it, you know, it inhibits our ability to enjoy life, just like his ability is inhibited. Um, but I don't call it a character defect. I call it a survival. I call those survival skills. They're a positive thing. I mean, I, I heard somebody not too long ago, you're an alcoholic. Congratulations. You found a way to survive your childhood. You know, uh, I know we don't all really relate to that background, but a lot of us do. Um, we are also told that we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Therefore, any maltreatment that comes our way was initiated by us. B.S. If you have childhood trauma, it's not your fault. And we do not recover from it by saying, God, save me from being angry. We deserve to get as angry as we need to get and deal with it. It doesn't just go away. Our fridge sponsors say, well, your part in it was that you carried it around for too long. Excuse me. Most of us have been, you know, we're told that we we don't step on the toes of our fellows. We tiptoe around being careful not to step on any toes and apologizing for being in the way when someone steps on our toes. (laughs) Okay. Um, Many of us have a very weakly defined sense of self because we've, we've always been trying to adapt and fit in. We don't have good boundaries. When we come into AA and AA tells us who we are, even though they are completely wrong, we don't have any defense to it and proceed to try ourselves as being like, to see ourselves as being like Bill. We need to get God or die. And the fact is we've been far from not admitting to a power greater than ourselves. We have been giving away our power to people, places, and things all our lives in the hope of getting our needs met from the outside because we don't have a clue how to do it from the inside. So aside from admitting that we're powerless over alcohol, our recovery needs to be about empowerment. Uh, I'm almost done here. Some of us screw up in households with emotionally immature, narcissistic or codependent parents. And I stole this from my friend Jay because it kind of fits for me. I grew up in a house full of funhouse mirrors and the gas lights were on all the time. (laughs) The big people told us who we were, how we felt, what we thought, who we should be, what we should act like. Okay, so I came out of that, and my early experience in AA was a whole new gaslighting experience. It was a different set of people telling me who I was, what I thought, and they were wrong. You know, I I guess the point I want to make is that the one-size-fits-all model has been keeping AA stuck and it causes further damage to many women. Thank you so much, Beth. Beth, that makes such an incredible segue into what Heather is gonna move us into now. Heather, do you, are you ready to take it from here? Yeah, I think, I think so. Awesome, thank you. 
Okay. Hi, everyone. My name's Heather. Um, I do identify as someone who is recovering from alcohol use disorder as well as uh, drug addiction. It's really good to be here. Wow. Really two very intimidating acts to follow, I must say. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that there was just so many uh, excellent points that both Maria and Beth that both of you made. Um, I feel like I could spend my whole time here just, ta you know, responding to all of them. And I'm sure ever, I'm sure I'm sharing the sentiments of most of the people in the Zoom room right now in, uh, in expressing that. Um, but what I think I'm going to focus in on today really is um, addressing uh, the steps, the 12 steps themselves in terms of keeping AA stuck in an outdated model uh, that is biased in favor of uh, men, uh, male identified. I, I wouldn't even say male identified, just cisgender, white, heterosexual, um, and, and usually even, uh, you know, some kind of faith-based um, men. And uh, as many of us already know, being here in a secular AA conference meeting is that uh, the, the religiosity and even the spirituality of this program that is built into the 12 Steps is not working for us on some level. Uh, what I want to address really is how... Um, the 12 steps and particularly steps four through nine um, can be not only not helpful, but as Beth uh, intimated in, in what she was uh, discussing, damaging and abusive and further traumatize uh, many women who are coming into recovery and looking for the relief that is literally promised, literally promised in doing the 12 steps. Uh, and, uh, and, and I do um, relate you know, some of my experience as having uh, been somewhat traumatic, having I've done a fourth step. Uh, so I've actually been in AA twice. I first came in 20 years ago. Um, I stayed in for about four and a half years. I left the program because I got sick of giving credit to a God I don't believe in for all the hard work I had been doing to improve my life and stay sober. Um, and but during the time that I was out, about 13 years, I went to college, which I'd never been, and got a couple of degrees and learned quite a bit about uh, gender and race and class and sexuality and these institutions and uh, systems of domination and hegemony within our culture. And I really learned about uh, feminism uh, in a way that was about deconstructing sort of invisible systems of power and control that operate through hegemonic lines of thinking and ideology, right? Uh, hegemony doesn't work by, uh, you know, physical force or abuse. It works by maintaining systems of control about the way that we think about things. And then I would even add, and the way that we feel about things. Um, I was reading recently and doing research for um, my book is that um, statistic, statistical evidence demonstrates that women who go into recovery, now this is women, not, we're not saying all alcoholics or addicts, but women who are seeking recovery or seeking treatment for alcohol use disorder and addiction report um, rates of trauma and abuse uh, that put us in, um, what am I trying to say? How do I rephrase this? 60 to 80% of women seeking treatment report having experienced some trauma in their lives. Now, this is not even to address the um, everyday trauma of living in a patriarchal society defined by hege hegemonic norms of femininity that we may or may not subscribe to or resist. As many of us know, coming into AA, um, that we meet all kinds of other women here, right? All, all sorts of us. Some of us are feminists. Some of us maybe not so much. Some of us might be quieter. Some of us, as Beth said, suffer from low self-esteem. Some of us may be raging egomaniacs. You know, I 
I, I, it, we're, women are not immune to it, right? And that's not my point here. My point really is about the fact that when we come into the rooms with pre-existing traumas and we begin doing the steps because we want to be willing, we want to be a part of, for me, for myself, I was so broken. I was suicidal for years before I came in into AA. I was a hopeless drink to die alcoholic that could not stay out of ERs and psych wards and jail. And uh, so I was, I did become willing to do what it took, but I had all this education now behind me the second time coming in and all these broader understandings of social um, uh, socialization of gender roles and conformity. And I'm naturally really resistant to that anyway, but now it's backed by all this education. And what I was told was that I needed to check my feminism at the door if I wanted to live. And if I wanted to recover, and I thought this is preposterous, not only are they telling me to check my religious or my non-religious, my atheist views at the door, now I have to check my feminism at the door. What next? Am I going to have to check my anti-racism at the door? Don't even get me started. That's another panel, right? So, but my focus is that I began doing the steps with a sponsor, lovely woman. She was by the book and by the book, I mean the big book. We didn't even do the 12 and 12. Um, and that's how I did the steps with her. And in, in doing step four, I was promised this great relief, all this insight. Well, let me tell you, all the things that I enumerated and outlined in my fourth step were things that I was already well aware of in my life and in the world. I had patri patriarchy on my fourth step. Um, you know, I had sexism, homophobia, racism. These were like some of the top five things on my fourth step. And you know what? My sponsor had no clue what to do with that. None. Right. Because it, and, and, it, and she didn't need to per se. But when I tried to impress upon her, what goes in that fourth column? <laughs> What's my part? There was there was it was crickets. There was no there was no sufficient response. Now, I'm not I'm, I'm talking about sort of these so, kind of social broad traumas, but there were also individual and personal traumas, sexual abuse, assault. Uh, rape, um, and physical assault, um, and, and things like that. So I've come into it with a lot of trauma there. And I'll tell you, you get to that fourth column, and anyone who, do, who has done a fourth step, you know what I'm talking about. It's that my part, the way that it's outlined in traditional AA and the way the steps are currently written, I'm not talking about any external uh, appendages or other outside books. I'm talking about AA's orthodox literature is that there's no fifth column. There's no, what do I do about this? There's my part, which they encourage you to outline in the framework of the seven deadly sins, right? Uh, and then what? what's the next step? There's no fifth column. What do I do about it? The next thing you do about it after the fifth step, sharing it with somebody, which may be even humiliating and degrading and further uh, amplify your trauma. Uh, but, uh, but then you go into the sixth step. Oh, it's character defects. It's character defects. I need to ask God to remove this. Okay, well, as an atheist, that already just doesn't even make sense. Six and seven, just they're gibberish. They're absolute gibberish if you're an atheist. Um, and uh, so I had to do all of this dancing around, uh, creating new language, new, uh, you know, ways of, of sort of getting through six and seven, which were meaningless. And by the way, I was feeling not better and better and better, but worse and worse and worse. Not better, worse. And I would share this in meetings, and I was actually told, as Beth mentioned in uh, in her um, discussion just now, I was actually uh, approached by two members of AA after a meeting where I was sharing um, the trauma that I was going through and how depressed I was in my journey through the steps. And they told me that I was engaging in morbid uh, reflection and self pity and suffering from self pity. And uh, so, you know, this is the kind of feedback and, and I stayed, I mean, really, it's a testament to the fact that I know 
I can't do this by myself and that I really did want to improve my life. Uh, but my confidence in whether or not traditional Orthodox AA uh, was going to be of any use to me was failing uh, on a regular basis. Um, and, uh, you know, thank God I found secular AA. Uh-huh. I know I, I'm, I'm guilty of like stupid jokes and bad puns. Um, but uh, but now so so going through um, the, 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 the steps we're now into eight and nine, we've got to make a list of people we have wronged. Well, the assumption that the big book makes really is that, you know, the things that are holding you back, uh, in recovery from this, uh, this disease of addiction and alcoholism are your own resentments and the way that you fucked other people over. And this is just not the case for people who are experiencing trauma and have experienced trauma, whether it's an individual individual isolated event, a series of those individual isolated events, or a lifetime of living under a, uh, you know, capitalistic, white supremacist, patriarchal world order, right, which is a trauma in in and of itself. And I'm not going to document the literature on the academic studies that back that up, but I will say that it is out there. I'm not just taking this off the top of of my head. Um, So, So then uh, we end up in a situation where quite possibly because we're trying to be willing, I was trying to be willing, uh, I end up going to make amends to people who had inflicted trauma on me. So this is just a a really kind of a casual light outline of my own anecdotal, anecdotal experience. And I have to say it took me years. Uh, to look back and realize that I had been further traumatized by doing the steps in this program. And so I would say wholesale uh, that if anybody coming into uh, AA, traditional, secular, otherwise, uh, that the one thing that AA really has gotten right is this community, this fellowship. You know, the one promise that AA made to me that it has not broken um, is that I don't have to do this by myself. I don't need a God to get me through it, but I do need you guys. And I need to show up for you too. And so there is a, a, a an integrity and a vulnerability that I have learned by being a part of a community, showing up for myself, showing up for you guys. But for me, I just feel that the the steps don't need to be a part of it. And in fact, um, what I you know would like to see moving forward um, is a greater emphasis. If AA is going to refuse to be stuck, first of all, the the rewriting of the of the big book is mandatory. But I think that's too big of a question to kind of pose right now. And I'm not sure what my time is. I totally forgot to set my timer. Um, but uh, but to really Okay, to really impress upon people uh, what AA has always purported, which is that the steps, the steps are merely a suggestion. They're not a requirement and that they're not going to work for everyone. And I think as a community, we need to become more vocal about that, that let people know, particularly women and, and people who are, who are gendered or raced or sexualized others coming into the program, listen, you know, the, the steps may not work for you. And in fact, they may actually be more damaging, particularly if you know that you've experienced trauma in your life uh, and that there, there could be other ways. And we encourage you to, to experience, uh, you know, to go out and, and investigate all different kinds of, of methods of recovery uh, because there are so many out there. And for me today, I know that the basis of my recovery is based on self-empowerment. You know, I'm not a raging egomaniac and, uh, and, and I'm, I'm happy happy to, you know, be coming back more, in, you know, more back into myself with that sense of self-confidence and self-worth um, and know that I have a right to process my trauma and deal with the events of my life in an appropriate manner that have nothing to do with the 12 steps. Thanks. Heather, thank you so much. And thanks to everyone, everyone who has been a part of this. Because we are a vibrant and interesting group, I do want to capitalize on these uh, these incredibly gifted co-panelists of mine and tap their knowledge a little bit further just with a couple of follow-up questions that have come up in the chat. I'm going to wrap this up in a few minutes. We do not probably have time for active like sharing. We may get to a question or two at the end, and I see two hands up now. I will try very hard to get to those. 
Um, first, I just want to bounce one follow-up question to Beth. Um, I wonder if you could speak a little bit to the the question I have, which is coming out of these questions on the in the chat. Do you think that there is a way we can move beyond um, the the structures within the literature as it is written today? Is there a way that within our rooms, within our active program, because people talk about the gaslighting of sponsors, sponsors who are participating and all of that. How do we as women and women identify people within the program? How do we actively create a community for women that is safer for those who do wish to participate in the traditional meetings in the steps as such? Do you want to, can you respond to that for just a sec? Well, yes. I mean, that's kind of what I hope I've done with my book because for each of the steps, I, I, I mean, I call it, I say the book is an adjunct to the AA program. It's not instead of, but where the, where there's parts of the steps that are harmful, I, I, re, I, I sort of reframe them in a more positive way because all it looked like to me was when I came in was I'm bad and now we're going to go down this list of more immoral, defective, shortcoming, bad, bad, you know, and well, I've been telling myself that stuff my whole life. That's not really what it, what's going to make me healthy, focusing on that. Um, so so I made them in a more positive light when it comes to the resentments. We have them against the people that traumatized us. And I don't say we have to make amends to those people. I say we have to deal with the with that trauma. Um Keeping our see, AA agrees that we need to keep our side of the street clean. So for me, that includes, you know, you crapped on my side of the street. I'm putting it back on yours. You know, <laughs> so, um, and uh, I I focus a lot on harm to ourselves and how we can work ourselves out of that. Like we don't even, I mean, we're our self-centeredness is self-doubt, self-criticism, self-sabotage, you know, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's painful stuff, but I have us look at like, well, what's the payoff that we get from being that way? We somehow think it's so like when you're getting ready to get rid of these things, look at, well, why do I, why do I do them? What, what am I getting out of it? You know, well, I, I guess I think they're keeping me safe by holding me back, but that's not really true. Um, fears, I don't just say ask God to remove them. I look at, I say, well, let's look at these fears. Is this realist, a realistic fear or is this more of an imagined fear? You know, and first of all, try to figure that out. And if it's not a real fear or something left over from the past that isn't true today, we can let it go. If it is a real fear, then we go into risk management and have a plan. Right. So it's more it's very <laughs> kind of down to earth. And we don't just be have to be left with these free floating things that we feel all the time and never looked at, because that's what the steps are for, is to put the stuff down and look at it. But, it is, you know, like there's an example of, well, what do I do with it? Well, you know, you go into risk management if it is a realistic fear is, you know, what can what can I do? What what can't I do? How expensive is it? How how likely is it to happen? All all those things that you look at to um, have a plan so that if the situation comes up, you have a plan instead of just thinking about it all the time. Um, and I, I think some of the ideas would be accepted in mainstream AA um, because they're not really going against the steps so much as reframing them a little bit or digging a little deeper actually. Okay. That, that's a great, that's a really good concrete way of, uh, way of approaching this because people are asking great questions about how do we, how do non-women, how do other people, how do groups do this? How do we do this at the group level in practice? I think that someone just pointed out that people do have business meetings where some of these questions can be addressed in a really concrete way. How does the individual, how do we work with uh, what we actually have in the reality of that? I do want to follow up once. Thank you, Beth. I want to follow up briefly with Heather. Um, so the question just briefly also of someone pointed out that there is such orthodoxy to, to AA's practice. You know, there's a real clinging to um, to texts, to to standards, to, you know, basically uh, the, the gospel, let's have it. Um, of of what we're coming from, how do we re uh, how do we how do we address that in our lives? If we whether we choose to stay within the rooms or without of the room without the rooms, how can we 
how can we approach maybe integrating what we do know now about contemporary psychology, about gender, about race, about all these aspects? How do we integrate that into the practice of a program that is in many ways very attached to its past? Um, excellent question. I think uh, that one of the first things that we need to emphasize is that um, uh, AA is a, absolutely a democratic organization. If it's an organization or an institution at all, of course, informally, uh, it is an institution. It's the leading model of addiction recovery uh, in North America in any event, right? <laughs> But to emphasize the fact that it is a democracy, everyone's voice is equal. And as someone had just mentioned, uh, that business meetings are a great way for us to begin to implement uh, this kind of uh, language that redresses the inherent gender bias. I think one of the other things is for people to become activists within AA. You know, we we hear that old, oh, you know, the, the serenity prayer or whatever in traditional meetings, maybe the acceptance. Uh, you know, passage in, in other meetings, um, but acceptance is not resignation and it's not tolerance, right? I can accept that this is the way things are, but still be motivated to change them for the better so that recovery uh, within the context and the framework of Alcoholics Anonymous can break free from uh, biased traditions that hold some people back and actually end up being more damaging. I think for young people coming in, yes, men and women and non-binary folks coming into the rooms should not have to check their feminism at the door. Uh, they should not have to check any kind of ideology that helps them to uh, have a belief system that works for them in, in the world at the door. What we're talking about is treating alcohol use disorder and addiction. And uh, we are, the fact is, is that we do walk into the rooms or whatever, the Zoom rooms, but we do walk into the rooms as embodied creatures, right? We are enfleshed and embodied and enworlded. Uh, I love the title of this panel. There is no out, there are no outside issues. This is not an outside issue. And we need to begin addressing it in our meetings, um, in, in our business meetings. And I encourage people to become GSRs, to get active at that level of uh, participation in ACE so that we can begin to uh, change uh, the literature. You know, somebody pointed out recently that um, there's a pamphlet that AA still publishes, that's still in circulation, called For the Woman, which implies the whole big book is for the man. And, um, and so that's something to sort of uh, take as concrete evidence that there is a, a gender bias that, that we can address in the literature, but also in our practices in the meetings. Thank you, Heather. And I want to I want to uh, respond really briefly to what Kenji in San Francisco has just said. The point that this almost this entire this this group is almost entirely white. So I I want to respond to Kenji's point, which is that it isn't a necessarily literal or tacit um, or it's not an explicit sexism always. It's not always explicit racism. There's also just a matter of demographic. And so becoming more inclusive in our rooms and in our meetings and in our program is more than just, I'm gonna show up and be nice. You know, I mean, it isn't just that. I mean, so I, I, I read a, a you know, a very interesting article recently by a very, very gifted journalist pointed out that if I am not actively working against racism, I'm participating. If I am not actively working against sexism and misogyny, I am participating it in some way. And that doesn't mean I mean to be. It doesn't mean an intentional or an ill will all the time. Sometimes it does. But I do want us to kind of take away from here just the question, even just the question of how can I create a more inclusive space for people? How do I reach out? And I'm aware that we have traditions that say, you know, we're attraction, not promotion. But if my group of people, if I'm attracting only people who are already white feminists, I'm making this a fairly limited draw. And so I do, I do want to think, I want to think myself, I want us all to be thinking about how can we broaden our 
people's awareness that we are welcoming as communities. We aren't one community any more than we are one woman. Uh, and I think we just barely have time. Kate raised her hand a bit ago. And then Meg, let's take the last few questions very quickly if we could. Thank you. Hi, thank you so much. This was amazing. I feel like I feel so validated hearing these voices and hearing your opinions because I live on Long Island. It's pretty conservative. Um, I found my way in AA, but thank you so much for this panel. It's been extraordinary. Um, and I know Beth addressed this a little bit. When I first started in the rooms, I was very vocal in my feminism and I was approached by a young woman who basically told me, you know, you'll never get this sort of um, committee support that you need to change the big book. I'm paraphrasing, but I have for the first time actually have a sponsee and she really reached out to me as a result of my sort of alternative ideas around the 12 steps. And I was wondering if the panel could sort of give me some guidance and insight. And Beth, you certainly did that somewhat um, about really working with her in an alternative way. Um, that's very important to me to support her. And she clearly does not want to work in a conventional fashion. You know, I'm going to bounce that right to Heather, if we could. Thank you, because I know Heather actually has really practical and immediate experience on that. If Joe, I know we are super close. Can we go one minute over? Cool. Thank you. All right. And Meg, we will come to you next. So Heather, would you speak to that? Sure, I will. And thank you. Um, yeah, so I actually uh, am a, a sponsor. I kind of put that in air quotes because um, I, I currently sponsor uh, three women in the program, uh, one who we work the steps with very early on, uh, but we continue our dialogue about that experience. Uh, and a new and a new sponsee, I think I said called her a sponsor, a new sponsee, which what we are doing, and she's an atheist, she's a feminist, uh, uh, we have a similar worldview, so that helps to begin with. What we're doing is we're putting together a personalized recovery plan. She is designing it. I'm just there to bounce ideas off of, to give encouragement, and uh, as a friend of mine always puts it, to be a loving ear, uh, to provide her with a sense of love and support uh, that uh, her recovery matters, uh, not in some abstract sense, but it matters. It matters to me, and that I want to help her in any way that I can, and again, trusting that I've got good ideas. You know, I don't don't have to, you know, and, and if I have bad ideas, I can apologize, we can and we can talk our way through it. But it's really about having open communication. And, uh, and this is what I'm advocating is get out there and read other books about addiction. So much has been written in the last 70 years. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you. That is such a good point. I mean, just it does not, trust me, have to be conference approved to be valid and interesting. Meg, would you take us out? Will you? Do you feel like doing this summary? Uh, I'm not going to do a summary. I'm just going to throw out a red herring. I'm a free thinker who's atheist and agnostics. I am a free thinker. I used to be an atheist. I consider myself beyond beyond belief because I became a witch. And uh, being a witch in traditional AA is also not acceptable. And um, um, witches don't give up their will. They don't give it up, usually. Some do. Um, using uh, gods instead of God can ruffle feathers, too. And so that's another minority thing. And I'm going to these meetings now, uh, Pagans in Recovery, and um, I just worked a fourth step that was all art. You know, I, I cut these bugs out, the things that bug me, and wrote that and pinned them up on a big board. And then I did a ton of affirmations, flowers and leaves and stars. So it's the first four step I ever worked that I felt fantastic because I saw that the things that bug me are just part of the garden. And, and I stopped calling myself a sponsor recently. I've got 34 years of sobriety and um, because I am not making people read that book anymore. Now I'm just a recovery buddy. I'm doing recovery craft. And if you want to do recovery craft, it's, 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 you know, I have an art background. So so I just want to throw that out there because I feel like as a free thinker, I get, I'm kind of, it's like being a bisexual, which I also am. I'm kind of invisible, you know, cause it seems like it's like the pagans and the God people over here. And then the, you know, you get the idea. If you're just consider that other option, the free thinker part of it. And also that ties into feminism a lot. Thanks. It does. It does. And, you know, I think, you know, what I do want to springboard from that, thank you so much, Meg, for showing that, is just, it doesn't matter. You know, Kurt Vonnegut's best writing advice ever was, whatever works, works. And as a writer, I'll tell you, that is the fact of it. So, you know, in this program, there is no gospel. All The only requirement, even for whatever we call membership, 
the desire to stop drinking. And if you can find a way to do that, that is both constructive and healing for you and perhaps constructive and healing for other people, let's bring it. Folks, thank you so much for being here today. I am deeply grateful to all of you for participating and I hope we can continue this elsewhere. Blessings all. You can unmute if you want to thank them properly, everybody. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It was awesome. Thank great you. session. Amazing. So thank much resonating. Thank you. Thank you. That was great. Thank you all. That was terrific. Oh, thank you. It's awesome. I wish That's we were this session being recorded. Yes, this uh, the audio will be available for listening and sharing. Fantastic, thank you. At uh, two o'clock in the Oh My God room is the history of the God Word, Atheists and Agnostics leaflet, which came from London. And it's only been out a few years, and a little talk about how more Atheist Agnostic stories can be found, find their way into uh, regular uh, mainstream uh, literature. So that's going on uh, in the uh, oh, my God, oh My God Room, which is on your program. It's just one click away. And here we're going to have a couple of uh, speakers uh, coming in um, from... Um, the Colmac Outpatient Recovery Centers. Saved by the bell. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this International Conference of Secular AA recording. You will find more at aa secular. Dot org. Thanks for listening.